Good morning. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Micah. I've entitled a message this morning, Swords in the Plowshares. And um, even though last week we were in chapter 5, Micah is broken up into three sections. So let's go ahead and read the text where Paul read for us earlier, and we'll come back into a little review. Micah chapter 4, verse 1. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and peoples shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem He will judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree. No one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken, for all people walk, each in the name of his God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and forever. So I've entitled this this morning, Swords into uh, Plowshares, and uh, Micah divides up nicely into um, um, three different sections. Micah sort of is a farm boy called to be a prophet. He is a prophet to the uh, downtrodden and exploited people of the Judean society. Uh, He prophesies during a time of great social injustice and imposed those who imposed their power upon the weak and the poor for selfish ends. There were corrupt rulers, there were false prophets and ungodly priests, all became targets for Micah's prophetic barb. Micah exposes judges who are bought by bribes and merchants who use deceptive weights. Uh, The pollution of sin has permeated every level of society, not only in the north, in Israel, but also in the south. So it's primarily to the north, but he's tying them both together. Um, The book of Micah has seven chapters. One through three is um, the prediction of judgment, but then it clarifies and goes into detail and it describes why judgment is coming, and it's primarily coming because of um, um, taking advantage of those through false weights, through bribes, through pledges, and um, uh, that's one through three. Chapter 4 is a change of thought completely because we now jump um, ahead. As we look at chapter 4, we are in the second division of the book, which chapters 1 through 3 is the um, prediction of judgment. Um, 4 and 5 is a prediction of restoration. So we're jumping ahead past the church age, past the rapture, past the tribulation, and now into the kingdom age. So chapter 4 primarily, and 
um, parts of chapter 5 deal with the prediction of, of restoration. Now, what we've been discovering as we've been going through the minor and the major prophets, that there's, there's, there's intermixture where the Holy Spirit will just stop, and like we studied last week, where it's talking about um, judgment and restoration, all of a sudden we have this prophecy, if you remember, from Micah 2, about where Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. And again, the Holy Spirit just throws it in there. So we shouldn't be surprised when we're reading a book that's just dealing with judgment, chapters 1 through 3, that all of a sudden, in the middle of that, we're going to talk about the kingdom age. So a good portion of our study this morning is looking at what is more than a blessed hope uh, for the church um, over and over again. What we're seeing here is not we're to touch this world ever so lightly because the fact of the matter is this isn't home. And um, our home is the New Jerusalem What we have in focus here this morning is the earthly kingdom that will exist for 1,000 years. We will describe different characteristics of it. Um, But in the very first verse, I've uh, divided it up between 1A and 1B because I want to just look at where it describes the time phrase. Where is Micah chapter 4? Where is it located in God's calendar of time? We read in verse 1, it came to pass in the latter days. I pose the question, when did the latter days begin? If there's latter days, do they have a starting point? Let's turn for our first cross-reference. We've got quite a few of them this morning. Um, By the way, just a sidetrack here. If you're coming to church here, make sure you bring your Bible. Somebody want to give me an amen or not? I was going to have to say Dave Hawking, amen, but I got one anyway. (laughs) Now, if you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you. And there's nothing sweeter to a preacher than hearing those pages turning. So let's go this morning to uh, Matthew chapter 24, and we are just going to jump around talking about where and how do we know that we're in the latter days. Let me give a commercial. I went online This goes back to something that Pastor Chuck made in 1973. It's called the parable of the fig tree. And he basically, a lot has changed in Israel since then. But even back then, from when they became a nation to 1973, the geographical and agricultural um, land of Israel was greatly changed. And the primary reason was the regathering of the people back in the land, but more importantly, and I'll stress this at the beginning of the study and at the end of the study, the Bible talks about the early rains and the latter rains. And before the 1900s, um, Israel was desolate and barren. When Mark Twain visited there, he says, there's nothing here except goats eating rocks. There's nothing else. And he was disillusioned until the latter rains. A big part of the agricultural recovery of Israel. So as we look at this, you can watch this if you go to hischannel.com. Just scroll through where it gets down to videos or movies and just scroll across until you get to the parable of the fig tree. I was going to show a little clip this morning, but I thought for the sake of time I'd just announce it so you can do your research on your own. Chuck takes a title... From that, from Matthew 24, verses 32 to 
35. And remember, the question is, when do the latter days begin? Micah chapter 4, verse 1a. Now learn the parable from the fig tree, always emblematic of the nation of Israel. When its branch has already become tender and put forth leaves, then you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the very door. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things are fulfilled. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will by no means pass away. The parable, we understand it in the spring of the year when the, when you know the leaves come out. Right now the leaves are falling, and we're looking at the fall colors, and they're beautiful, and, and um, we know that um, you know Thanksgiving's right around the corner, and it's that time of year for raking leaves, get the snowblower tuned up, so on and so forth, all that kind of stuff. We have seasonal changes. So when the fig tree buds, Israel is a fig tree. The question is, has it budded since um, Jesus spoke these words? These were spoken in 32 AD, almost 2,000 years ago. And um, uh, Israel has gone through many changes since then, but back in the land, And um, let's develop this a little bit farther by turning to Isaiah chapter 61. We're very familiar, of course, with the first three verses of Isaiah 61 because this is what Jesus fulfilled when he went to Nazareth and he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. Uh, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison doors to those who are bound. And he stopped there. And he closed the book, and he said, this prophecy is fulfilled today in your hearing. That was in his hometown of Nazareth. He could not read to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, or that's where the comma was, where he stopped. He could not read the day of vengeance of our God, because it's a reference to the great tribulation. So he closed the book there. And he says, this is fulfilled today, but not the rest of that sentence. Again, be aware that in the middle of a sentence, you can have a gap of prophecy that goes, um, in this, this case, uh, you know, over a thousand years. I'm interested in verse 4. In verse 4 through 11, we read that, and they shall build up the old ruins They shall raise up the former desolation, and they shall repair the ruined cities, the desolation of many generations. Strangers will stand and feed your flock, and the sons of the foreigners shall be your plowman for the vine dresser. But you shall be named the priest of the Lord. Men shall call you the servants of our God. You shall eat the riches of the Gentiles. And in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame you will have double honor. And instead of confusion they will rejoice in their portion. Therefore in their land they shall possess double. Everlasting joy shall be theirs. For I the Lord love justice. I hate robbery for burnt offerings. I will direct their work in truth. I will make with them an everlasting covenant. 
Their descendants shall be known among the Gentiles and their offspring among the peoples, and all who see them shall acknowledge them uh, that are the posterity whom the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garment of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks herself himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels, for as the earth brings forth and buds. Now tie this into Matthew 24. When the fig tree buds, Jesus said all things are going to be fulfilled in that generation. And as the earth brings forth its bud and causes the things that are sown to spring forth, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all nations. The parable of fig tree is primarily just about Israel budding forth. But during the millennial reign, anti-Semitism is prevalent in the world today. And I'm going to talk more about that in just a little bit. During this period of time, double portion of blessings for the Jewish people. Those who despised Israel will become their ones who do their plowing and do the chores. But Israel will be exalted, our home, in contrast to the 1,000-year reign on planet Earth, where the Bible says, to the promises of the churches, we're going to rule and reign with Jesus as kings and priests. But it's not our home. Our home is the new Jerusalem. That's John 14. I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, you will be also. And Revelation 20 talks in great detail, describing um, the new Jerusalem. 1,400 miles long, 1,400 miles wide, 1,400 miles high. And it goes into great detail describing your eternal home. So this world is not our home. We're only passing through. Don't you feel like singing right now? (laughs) It's good to know with all the stuff that's coming down in our world. Boy, don't get sidetracked here, Dwight, because you really could. All right, so as we look at um, verse 4 of 61, and they shall rebuild the old ruins. They shall rise up the former desolation and repair the ruined cities. This began in Israel. Actually, I was born in 51, so just a couple years before I was born, uh, Israel became a nation. So as we look at Micah chapter 1, it says that, If we go back to Micah chapter 1, verse 1a, the question is, um, and it shall come to pass in the latter days, I pose the question, when do the latter days begin? The answer is when the fig tree buds, when the latter rains have come and um, turn the mountains of Israel into forest. Let's turn to Psalm 102 at this time. I'm building here, so bear with me during our building project for our study this morning. Verses 12 through 18. But you, O Lord, shall endure forever, and the remembrance of your name to all generations. You will rise and have mercy on Zion. For the time to favor her, yes, the set time has come. For your servants take pleasure in her stones. Now, 
when we go to Israel in a couple weeks, you cannot build in Jerusalem unless you use Jerusalem stone. Every building has to be made out of Jerusalem stone. So when it says they will take pleasure in your stone, there's nothing more beautiful than getting up early, sitting on a Mount of Olives and watch the sun come up over and have those rays hit hit the wall and the different um, amber glows as the rocks change color right before your eyes. And as the sun goes up, it's just an incredibly beautiful sight. They take pleasure uh, in your stones and show favor to her dust. So the nations shall fear the name of the Lord and the kings of the earth your glory. Now verse 16. For the Lord shall build up Zion, and when he does, he shall appear in his glory. Well, that's Matthew 24, the parable of the fig tree. When it buds, you will see the fulfillment of all Bible prophecy. Here it's confirmed again in Psalm 102. When he builds up Zion, he shall appear in his glory, and he shall regard the prayer of the destitute and shall not despise their prayer. Now, before I read verse 18, we had David Dolan here several years ago for a prophecy conference. He's a journalist, uh, believer from Jerusalem. He lives in Jerusalem. And he did his study on Psalm 102. And when he got to this verse, he paused. And he says, I want to go slowly with verse 18. Because when they translated it um, into our language... It was a miss. They did, they did not translate it correctly. Let's read the way it, it's written here. He said, This will be written for the generation to come, that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. He says, That's not what's being said here. And so he literally says, This will be written for, and he put in, the last generation. And when we asked him about it, his comment was, It was difficult for the translators to actually make such a comment because of the implications of the statement, because it's so definitive. If we read that, uh, this will be written for the last generation. For those who have um, replacement theology or a preterist or don't... uh, um, believe in the regathering of nation, you're going to have a big problem with that. And if you're a translator, they sort of fudged on this one. I don't know how better else to say it. They didn't have the nerve to come out and say what's really being said here. And David was adamant about it. He said, this is not what's being said. What is said is this is written for the last generation. Last generation, Matthew 24 says what? When you see Israel bud and um, bringing forth Here we read in Psalm 102, when the Lord builds up Zion, he's going to appear in his glory. He's going to come again. And then it goes on to say that this will be written for the last generation that there will be a people that will praise the Lord. Hmm. What were we doing this morning before we had the Bible study? We were praising the Lord. Why? Oh, because we love him. We're grateful. He's so good to us giving us what we don't deserve, taking our sin, giving us his righteousness, and setting you free. What's not to sing about? What's not to be happy about? The joy of the Lord is our strength. And so we can, uh, we can openly do that. 
All right, let's turn to, um, the, the, again, the, the latter rains, literal now, because towards the end of the study, I'm going to make a spiritual application to the early and the latter rains from the, the book of James. But here we're talking about a literal returning of rain to the land of Israel, which started around the 1900s. So let's go to Isaiah chapter 27. Give you a moment to get there. Isaiah 27. Let me draw your attention to verses. We'll read 1 through 6. And this, the title of this, Israel Blossoms in the Kingdom. Verse 1, in that day the Lord with his severe sword, great and strong, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Well, this happens at the end of the tribulation. When the devil is finally vanquished, he's called here Leviathan, that twisted serpent, and he shall slay the reptile that is in the sea, praise the Lord. Verse 2, in that day sing to her a vineyard of red wine. I, the Lord, kept it, I water it, and that's the latter rains every moment, lest any hurt it, I keep it night and day, fury is not in me, who would set uh, briars and thorns against me in battle? I would go through them, I would burn them all together. Or let him take hold of my strength, that he may make peace with me, and he shall uh, make peace with me. And those who come, he shall cause to take root in Jacob. Notice, Israel will blossom and bud, and the hill and fill the face of the world with fruit. And you go, why would he make a statement like that? Well, the fact of the matter, have you ever heard of Joppa oranges? It's the fourth largest producer of fruit in the entire world. Could I say that again? This little nation of Israel, size of New Jersey, is the fourth largest producer of fruit in the world, when it was nothing but stones and rocks before. Here's a prophecy that says exactly that. It's going to blossom, that's what Matthew 24 says, when Israel buds, okay? When the latter rains began, Israel began to blood, uh, bud. The houses will be rebuilt. That's what we read in Psalm 102. And here we read that when Israel does bud, it will fill the face of the world with fruit. Um, tourism is right up there at the top. Diamonds are right in there. Their technology is off the charts we're no longer leading in the computer industry in the world. Israel is. And we go to them for our technology. Uh, somebody um, who was here, uh, Jim Fletcher. I'm getting off. I've got to remember where I'm going now so I can make my way back. When Jim Fletcher was here, you notice he had a patch on his eye. A gun blew up that he had bought in an antique store. Hadn't been fired. Uh, he didn't know there was a, a load in the chamber. He put another load in and... The gun took out his eye. And that's why he was wearing the patch. And by the way, he said to say hi to Calvary Chapel of Appleton. He said it was a breath of fresh air and really an encouragement for the prophecy conference. But he's going to Israel. Why? Because they're going to make him a new eye so he can see again. Connect it to his, to his brain so that it can function. And that's the technology that exists today. 
If uh, you were reading the news bites, I'd encourage you to go back and read the article on uh, what is how fast technology is changing. And um, uh, they're actually talking about artificial intelligence being our new God. It was in the very first article. So again, we could get really sidetracked here. But the point is, what did Daniel say in the last days? Knowledge would increase. None of the wicked would understand, but those who are wise, they're going to understand. So we understand this plays into Bible prophecy. So here we read, is, is, the question is, are we in the latter days and how do we know? Well, Israel is going to bud. Well, that's easy enough. It's a yes or no answer. Is Israel budding? And I've been going there since 79 and seeing seen that um, year after year get more beautiful and more beautiful and more beautiful. And somebody just gave me a, a present from the Gideons that said a, a tree has been planted in Israel in honor of you for somebody making a donation from the Gideons. And uh, the, the reforestation of Israel is just off the chart. So Israel is budding and blooming, Matthew 24, um, when that happens. All right, let's go back to Micah. We made it all the way through verse 1a. <laughs> Okay, now Micah 1b through verse 2. That the mountains, verse 1, of the Lord's house shall be established on top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and people will flow into it. Many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth in the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Evidently, what's being said here is that Jerusalem is going to be elevated to the mountain of the Lord. Well, even to this day, all directions you have to go up to Jerusalem. But let's um, go to Daniel chapter 2 at this time. I'll take you, give you a couple, a little bit of time to get there. Uh, Daniel 2, of course, is the famous dream of Nebuchadnezzar that nobody could interpret of the metallic image. Only Daniel could give the interpretation of what the king saw. And um, he reveals the dream to Nebuchadnezzar. He says there's a God in heaven who reveals secrets in verse 28. We'll pick it up in verse 28. So he's speaking to Nebuchadnezzar, but, oh, I can't resist, not without giving a very sarcastic comment to the supposedly wise men of Babylon. That's verse 27. I would love the better to hear this one. Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, uh, you know, the, the secrets which the king had commanded, what about your wise men and your astrologers and your magicians and soothsayers? Uh, couldn't, couldn't they do that? <laughs> but there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be when? Notice again, in the latter days, just like our verse 1 And this was your dream. You dreamed, and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. As for you, O king, thoughts came into your mind while you were on your bed 
about what would come to pass after this. And he who reveals secret has made known to you what will be. But as for me, the secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than any, anyone else. I like this. He doesn't take any credit. He doesn't want any credit. He's just saying, I'm speaking on what the Lord has shown me. But for our sakes, who make known the interpretation to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your heart. O king, you are watching, and behold a great image. And the great image whose splendor was excellent stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image, its head was of fine gold, its chest and arm of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron, partly of clay. And you were watching while a stone was cut out without hands, struck the image on the feet of iron and clay, and broke them in pieces, And then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold were crushed together, became like the chaff from the summer threshing floor. And the wind carried them away so that no trace was found of them. Now, and the great stone that struck the image became what? A great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream. Now I will tell you the interpretation. If we'll skip ahead at this point, to verses 44 and 45. He's talking about the days that we're living in now. I believe the rapture is right around the corner. And immediately after that, we will have this Antichrist establishing um, his 10 kingdoms, his 10, um, the last days. Verse 44, in the days of these kings, what kings? The 10 kings, 10 toes, The God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom will not be left to other people. It will break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it will stand forever. And inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. And history has shown these nations coming and going. Babylon came and went, fell to the Medo-Persians, fell to Alexander the Great, Grecians, fell to Rome. Rome fell from within, but the Bible says there's going to be a revived Roman Empire in the last days. So we're watching Uh, Europe right now with great interest as we see this coming out. Uh, I was listening to Amir Shafate just this last week. It was an older program, but he was talking about this very thing, and somebody was asking the question about Turkey. And they were implying that the leader of Turkey might be the Antichrist. And it got real awkward because Amir said, well, I don't know quite how to say this, but um, this guy is the most anti-Semitic person that I know. He hates Israel. At one time, they were friendly with Israel. And he explained that the Antichrist is not anti-against, but in, uh, in type of or a counterfeit of. In order for Israel to accept him, he has to give permission Daniel 9, verse 27, to have a peace treaty so Israel would be able to build their temple. 
And he says, Ahmad just said, look, I'm a Jew. I grew up in Israel. There is no way on this planet that the Antichrist is going to come out of Turkey. He's going to come out of the revived Roman Empire. There's not a Muslim in the world that's going to give a green light to have a temple built on the Temple Mount. And he says, you really have to be Jewish to understand this, but he says, I believe the Bible says that he will, um, there's a reference that he won't honor the God of his fathers, and the implication there is that he's Jewish. Okay, so we could follow that down. If you're not familiar with Amir's website, this guy is um, on a cutting edge on a daily basis. And many, not many, quite a few from the church, I know went up to um, Minneapolis for Jan's conference and and the reports, I talked to Eric this week, he finally got back with me and just said what a blessing it was. And and, um, Amir was one of the speakers, as was a Calvary Chapel pastor from Hawaii who is Arab, and um, they're, you know, they had like six or 7,000 people show up for this thing. And um, anyway, that, that was a blessing. So i got to find my way back here. We're in Daniel, verse 44, 45. We're making the point that verse 1a and b is that it's going to be elevated to a mountain. And now we're finding scriptures that are saying just that. Let's turn to Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah is the second to the last book of the Old Testament. Zechariah 14, verse 9. It says, And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be, the Lord is one, in his name one. Now notice, and the land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimoth, south of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be raised up and inhabited in her from Benjamin's gate to the place of the first gate, to the corner gate, to the water gate. No, that's not in there. (laughs) And from the tower of Haniel to the king's winepress. And the people shall dwell in it, and no longer shall there be utter destruction, but Israel shall be safely inhabited. What happens to Jerusalem? It's elevated, and everything around it becomes a plain. So um, let's turn back to Micah. I think the scriptures establish the fact, as we read here, that many nations will go up to the mountain of the Lord, Micah chapter 4, verse 2, and people will make their way into it. If we would have finished in chapter 14, it calls, talks about the nations going to Israel to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And if they don't go, then they don't get any rain on their land. And so let's go to verse 3. Micah 3 tells us, He shall judge between many peoples, and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn of war anymore. Can you just imagine if we didn't have in our budget our gross national product 
if we didn't have to take money and use it for war. Do you know that uh, our budget this year is um, intended to be $834.2 billion? Of that, military spending, $602.8 billion. Veteran spending is budgeted at $175 billion. Foreign policy and foreign aid spending is budgeted at $56.4 billion. Now, here's the irony as we talk about um, Israel, and I want to bring in uh, the UN at this time. And the reason I'm bringing in the UN is the name of our study this morning is Swords into Plowshares. When the UN was established in New York, they put this plaque up, and we're putting it on the screen right now. Let's put up the plaque first before we put up the image. It says, They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Go ahead and put up the next slide. Here we have a, a guy beating his sword into plowshares. This is, this is the motto of the UN. But here's the irony of the UN. And that is that the UN, now bear with me as I just read, um, particularly the, their attitude. Um, the first prime minister, David Ben-Gurion, called the United Nations the United Nothing. If you've ever heard that phrase coined before, that's where it comes from. The first prime minister, David Ben-Gurion. It's the United Nothing. Um, I'll just read several branches of it. UN Human Rights Council. This is UN resolutions against Israel. From its creation in June 2006 to 2016, the UN Human Rights Council, over one decade, adopted 135 resolutions Criticizing countries, 68 out of the 135 resolutions have been against Israel, more than 50%. There's another branch of the UN National General Assembly. From 2012 to 2015, the United Nations General Assembly has adopted 97 resolutions criticizing countries. 83 of those 97 have been against Israel, 86%. UNESCO, each year the United Nations Education, Scientific, and Cultural Organization adopts around 10 resolutions a year, criticizing only Israel. UNESCO does not criticize any other UN member state in a country specific. A specific resolution is 100%. An exception occurred in 2013 when under pressure from UN Watch, UNESCO adopted one resolution on Syria. And I'll just quote one more, the World Health Organization. For one week every year, the UN World Health Assembly, the decision-making body of the World Health Organization, meeting to formulate the global health policy Resolutions are adopted to address global health issues. There's one exception. The annual resolution entitles health conditions 
in the occupied Palestinian territory, including East Jerusalem and in the occupied, quote-unquote, Syrian Golan, which singles out Israel for condemnation. No other country in the world is condemned by the World Health Organization. And here's the irony of, uh, of, of this, that they have as their motto, we will beat our swords in the pruning uh, hooks with the idea of bottom line bringing about, we're going to bring about peace. It's our motto. Here's our symbol. Well, here's the facts, folks. Isn't there a commercial that says that? Here's the facts, folks. Well, here's the facts. Um, we did a little research. I was just curious. And I thought, how many wars have been fought in recorded history? You can Google such things. I Googled a couple things of all the wars with 1,000 people or more dying. I thought, how many years of peace have we known? And since they've been recording with 1,000 or more as wars, since the history of war, we've had 286 years of peace. The history of war and the number of casualties is 341.7 million people, all because of war. The 20th century alone, 187 million people have died in wars. Stalin, with his communism, is responsible for 20 million people. That shatters Hitler and his annihilation of um, the Jews in the Holocaust with the 6 million. That's only 8% of the wars we have known. 92% of the time, the world has known war. So, how good a job has the UN been doing? We've been threatening for the last couple of years that we're going to pull out because we're paying the bill. And they're doing nothing for us. But under Obama, that was fine. I think it's going to get a little bit different with Trump. We'll have to wait and see. But we're paying the bills. We're flipping the bills, and, and um, we shouldn't be happy. Um, I'll quote this twice this morning. Genesis twelve three. I'm going to bless those that bless Israel. I'm going to curse those that curse Israel. And what is the UN doing? They're cursing Israel. Look out, UN. Uh, it's not only the world, bear with me with another little rabbit trail here, but the church, so called, is responsible for wars and killings. Through the Inquisitions, through the Crusades. Um, I'm quoting an article that was posted on World Net Daily. It was given by permission from uh, Joseph Farah. He says, later this month on Halloween, as a matter of fact, uh, the world will observe the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, of which is generally agreed upon as its starting date, October 31st, 1517, when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the um, church castle in Wittenberg. Uh, the article here is the dark side of the Reformation. While the Reformation, Luther ignited um, his uh, position on God's word, 
as the center of the Christian faith rather than man's traditions institution. Remember that Luther was a Catholic priest, and when he read the scriptures, he came to the conclusion that we should be more into the word of God and less on man's traditions. And he tacked up 95 examples on the Wittenberg door. It fell short. It had a dark side. There was a very ugly sectarian strife and violence that continued through the 30-year war that began 101 years later, taking the lives of 8 million Europeans caught up in a religious conflict. Now, I paused at that, and I cannot confirm that number. Eric and I were talking about this. Uh, I was was just getting sidetracked. I said, Eric, as long as we're on the phone, what do you think of this here? And I quoted this number. He says, Dwight, I'd, I'd, I'd want to track that one down. So this is a disclaimer. The number I just quoted here, I have not been able to verify. Everybody with me? Caught me on that one? So don't go and say, well, Pastor Dwight said that 8 million people died. I don't know for sure. But Joseph Farah gave this guy a green light. That doesn't mean Joseph is right. But nonetheless. Then he goes on to say, well, anti-Semitism had, had injected its ugly spirit into the church before the first century had ended. Luther and John Calvin uh, actually made things worse. One could even argue that the Holocaust, more than 400 years later, was made possible by this sort of spirit. Now, I've quoted this before from Hal Lindsey's book, The Road to Holocaust. It's a small track. Luther started out good with the Jewish people, and his heart wasn't necessarily against them. But in later years, I've quoted this several times over the years, but it's a part of this article, so I'll quote it again this morning. Here's a little bit of Luther on the New Reformation. Uh, Here's a little bit about what Luther wrote about the Jews. I quote, What then shall we Christians do with these damned, rejected race of Jews? Since they live among us, we know about their lying and their blasphemy and cursing. We cannot tolerate them if we do not wish to share with their lies and curses and blasphemy. It is in this way we cannot quench the inexhaustible fire of divine rage, nor convert the Jews. We must prayerfully and reverently practice a mere severity. I'm ready to... (laughs) At this point. Uh, Perhaps we may save a few from the fires and flames of hell. We must not seek vengeance. They are surely being punished a thousand times more than we might wish them. Let me give you my honest advice. Their synagogues should be set on fire. Whatever does not burn should be covered up or spread over with, with dirt so that no one may ever be able to see a cinder or stone of it. And this ought to be done for the honor of God and Christianity, in order that God may see that we are Christians and that we have not uh, wittingly tolerated or approved of such public lying, cursing, and blasphemies of his son and his Christians. This is a blueprint that was quoted by Hitler during the Holocaust. All right, let's get over to Calvin's comments on it. Calvin, too, showed contempt for Jews in his writings. I had much conversations with many Jews. I've never seen either a drop or piety or a grain of truth in them, nay, 
I've never found common sense in any Jew. He characterized them as profane dogs who, under the pretense of prophecy, stupidity, devour all the riches of the earth in their unrestrained uh, manner. He also stated that their rotten and unbelief, stiff-neckedness, deserves that they be oppressed, unending and without mercy or end, that they die in their misery without the pity of anyone. In 2017, we still, we're still feeling the effects of anti-Semitism, replacement theology that has spread by both Roman, the Catholic Church, and the Protestant movement. Even the Reformers forgot to take seriously their uh, seriously solo scriptura slogan when it came to the um, Israel-centric nature of the Bible, past, present, and future. Oh, yeah, those stupid Jews. Einstein, what an idiot. Um, Dylan couldn't carry a tune. Um, Peter, Paul, both Jews from Peter, Paul, and Mary. I could go on and on and on. You list any person in any part of our society, be it in mathematics, musicians, uh, in the field of science, you name it, and you're going to find a Jew at the top of the list. Somebody want to say an amen? amen? Say it again. You might get an extra blessing according to Genesis 12.3. I am. I just found out Joshua is 3% Jew. He went online, did one of those DNA things. So he's going to get treated a little bit better from now on. I'm no fool. You know, anti-Semitism, I grew up in a church not knowing what anti-Semitism was. And um, embarrassed to say that this is a part of Protestantism. That, um, and replacement theology. Clearly by people perish for lack of the knowledge of the word of God. And what God has to say about Israel and the remnant. And he has a plan and a purpose. He has a plan and a purpose for us. But remember last week when we were in Romans. Be careful church. Don't get too high minded. You've just been grafted in. And you're just a part of the real deal, which is Israel. And if the Lord cut them off, you better be fearful and walk in the fear of the Lord, and you better treat my people correctly. If I understand Matthew 25 correctly, when Jesus separates the sheep from the goats, he's not talking about um, um, missionaries in general feeding the poor and doing this. He says, to this, to these, my brethren. He's talking about the Jewish people. And how you treated them. So go out of your way and love on a Jewish person. And um, whether they're saved or, or otherwise. Um, so I asked the question if um, they've been hunted and hounded for so long. Remember the wristband, WWJD, what would Jesus do? Let's, let's get sidetracked. And before I take you here, I want to make a distinction. I'm talking about real Christian persecution and martyrdom, that's right here. And then I'm talking about war. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm making a distinction right now as we turn to John chapter 18. What would Jesus do when it comes to the sword and picking up the sword and killing with the sword? We live in a country that fights for our freedom. The Bible says, Thou shalt not... Murder. It doesn't say thou shalt not kill. 
we have the death penalty for good reason in some of our states. And I acknowledge that. Having said that, when we read in John 18, picking up in verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out to his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received the detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees came with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing that they would come upon him, he knew, went forward and said to them, "Uh, who are you guys looking for? And they answered and said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said unto them, and notice that the he is in italics. He said, I am. And that word is the same ego, I mean, and is the same words that came out of the burning bush. It says, I am that I am. And when he said, I am, uh, it says, he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. This is the only place in the Bible you're going to find somebody being slain in the spirit. And it's not in a good manner. Who are you? Who are you looking for? Jesus. I am. They all fall down. I would have went home. (laughs) They got back up. And then it says, whom are you seeking? Then Jesus said, "Um, I have told you that I am here. Therefore, if you seek me, let these other go. He's always thinking about his disciples. John Mark got caught by the robe as he was running away, and he ran away in the buff because somebody still had a hold of his robe. He was there. Peter, on the other hand, um, Simon Peter, verse 10, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear, and the servant's name was Melchus. Now, in another gospel, it says Jesus picked up his ear and put it back on. The last act and miracle of Jesus was covering for Peter, And he says, Peter, put up your sword into the sheaf. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has sent me? Now we're talking martyrdom. Now we're talking dying because that was the will of the father. That God sent his son into the world to die for the sins of the world. Over seven times in the gospel of John, he says, my hour has not yet come. Seven times in the gospel of John, he says, I am. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the door. I am the good shepherd, and so on and so forth. And here, he says, now my hour has come. Shall I not drink the cup that my father has given to me? He was talking about his death. He also told Peter in John 21, Pete, this is how it's going to happen to you. They're going to take you someday, and they're going to lead you to a place that you don't want to go. But Peter did it, and uh, they crucified Peter too. They said, don't do it right side up. I'm not worthy. Put the cross upside down. So they crucified Peter upside down. What's your point? Well, we're talking about war, Christian. But we're also talking about how we as Christians should respond when people one-on-one come against us. If somebody comes up and goes like that, slaps you on the feet, everybody knows what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to turn the other cheek. 
I was teaching at a pastor's conference down in Haiti, and we were going through that verse. And, of course, you have to go from the English to Creole. So when we got to this verse, I read it, and I stood, and I looked at Bastia, and I smacked him really hard. And everybody goes, oh! And I said, Bastia? And he's just looking at me like this, and he goes, <laughs> but everybody got the point. You know, applications, when you're we're talking through an interpreter, you can, make the, you can make the application with a demonstration a little bit more, more easily. Well, um, I'm just going to read here. The idea is, put away the sword, Peter. Having said that, when he set out to 70, he says, now this time take with you a bag of money and a sword. Interesting. So let's keep it in context. This is Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's a must-read for every Christian. I'm just going to read of one man named Polycarp. He was a pastor of Smyrna. And if you remember, Smyrna was a suffering church. I wish I could read all of his testimony, but for sake of time, I cannot. So I'm just going to read verse uh, one introduction here. In the time of the same Marcus... A great number of them were truly professed Christ, suffered most cruel torments and punishments. Among those was Polycarp, um, the pastor or bishop of Smyrna. And then it goes on to say that they tracked him down. Um, His friends told him to run, just make a run for it, Polycarp. So he did, but they found him. I'm not going to read all that. But after they finally... Uh, got a hold of him, he found out that he was an old man, like in his 80s. And they were surprised that such a warrant was being put, put out on this frail old man. And so I'm picking up, reading from Fox's book of Martyrs, when they found him, uh, the proconsul then urged him, saying, Swear, and I will release thee, reproach Christ. But Polycarp answered, Eighty and six years have I served him, He has never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who has saved me? The proconsul urged him, swear by the fortune of Caesar. Polycarp replied, since you still vainly strive to make me swear by the fortune of Caesar, as you express it, affecting ignorance of my real character, hear me frankly, declaring what I am, I am a Christian, and if you desire to learn the Christian doctrine, assign me a day, and I will tell you. And hereon the proconsul said, I'll have wild beasts, and I will expose you to them unless you repent. Call for them, replied Polycarp, for repentance with us is a wicked thing. If it is to be a charge for the better to the worse, but a good thing if it is to be a charge from evil to good. He said, I will tame you then with fire, said the proconsul, since you desire, despise the wild beasts unless you repent. And then said Polycarp, you threaten me with fire, which burns for an hour. It's soon extinguished, but the fire of the future judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly, you are ignorant of. But why do you delay? Do whatever you please. I could go on for another two pages that describe the event itself, but um, 
he put away his sword, except his judgment was against him, which was simply denying the gospel. Now, let's make it personal. Over and over again, we've been reading about continuing in the Lord. And here we are in the last days where it talks about the apostasy and a lot of people falling away. Just give me a moment to say, hang in there, gang. Don't look back. Don't worry about tomorrow. Uh, Be an overcomer. Well, what does that mean? It means hold on to the faith. We're told to examine ourselves daily to see if we're in the faith and to walk in the fear and admonition of the Lord, taking nothing for granted, and know that there's no other way. And look out for all the things that Jesus said would be in the last days, false Christ, false prophets, showing great signs and wonders, a lot of hoopla, uh, but getting away from scriptures. So will we ever see martyrdom? Well, they are in certain parts of the world right now. Elijah Abraham just sent me a gift I will never wear it. It is the wildest shirt I have ever seen on planet Earth. It's a private joke between him and us because we came here, we put him in a Hawaiian shirt, so he's been trying to get even ever since. And um, But where he is and where he's ministering, yeah, they're dying for their faith. But they're standing up and they're accepting the consequences for being a Christian. Are you? Are we willing to take that? Let's begin to wind this thing up this morning. Switching gears completely, characteristics of the kingdom. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 65. Micah chapter 4 is about Jerusalem. We just read, they shall learn of war anymore. No more learning of war. And then in verses... For to the end, we talk about everyone sitting under their own fig tree, and no one shall be afraid. In Isaiah chapter 65, characteristics of the kingdom, and we're reading Isaiah 65 verses 20, uh, verses uh, 65, verse 20, No more, this is during the kingdom age, no more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die 100 years old. Longevity of life restored, just like in the Garden of Eden. Oh, that's too bad. He was so young, only 100 years old. But the sinner shall be 100 years old, shall be accursed. There will be People in the millennium, you have to be saved to enter into the millennium, but then we have population explosion, and those people will have the right to choose or not to choose to believe in Jesus. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree, so shall be the days of my people. And my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth children for trouble. Hey, parents, how about a big amen for that one? (laughs) Nor shall be the descendants of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring to them. 
It will come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. And here's a verse that we all know. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. And dust shall be serpent's food. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. In Isaiah chapter 11, 6 through 10, it says the same thing. The wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the young goat. Now, these are natural predators. The cat and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little child shall lead them. A little kid will have a pet tiger, you know, that his, and he'll be able to romp and, and play with it. And that animal instinct of, of um, that's natural, that will be gone. They won't be meat eaters. They will eat straw. And verse 26, the lion will eat straw like the ox. In James chapter 5, we'll begin to close things up with just some personal applications. We're getting towards, we know the hour's late. And James makes an application just as there's a literal view of the early and latter rain. In our study this morning, the latter rain is a reference to literal rain returning to Israel, and it blossoms and blooms. Now James takes that, and he makes it, he spiritualizes it in the positive sense of the word for you and I. I'm quoting James, if you're taking notes, James 5, verse 7. Um, Well, I'll quote it, but you can turn to it if you want to. It says, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. We had uh, Sean Black here for the stake and study. And guys, if you missed it, not only did you miss a good stake, but you missed a good study. And he talked about the importance of patience. And men being men, we want things done right now. But here James is saying, be patient until the coming of the Lord. And then he quotes, he says, See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and the latter rain. Well, he's playing on that. He's assuming that we already know about the early and the latter rain that's literal for Israel, and he's applying it to us. And then in Luke 21, verse 36, being patient, not only being patient, as we're watching things happen in the world right now. But Luke 21, verse 36 says, Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Now, if you're anything like me, like Paul, we don't feel very worthy. Oh, Lord, Paul said, the things I don't want to do, I do. The things I should do, I don't do. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who's going to save me from my own nature? That's the end of chapter 7. Romans 8 verse 1 says, but because of Jesus Christ, he says, therefore. Therefore, there's no condemnation in Jesus Christ. So let's say you blew it this week. and You're all condemned about it. You're beating yourself up about it. John 1, 9, take it to the Lord. Confess your sins. 
He's faithful and he's just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Well, here we're told that um, we are to be counted worthy. Well, I don't feel very worthy. Well, I thank the Lord for 2 Corinthians 5.21 where it says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become and have the righteousness of God. That's how Jesus sees you this morning. Even though uh, we sin, he's made provision. He's the high priest, the only mediator between God and man that you have to deal with. If you've never done it, it's as easy and as simply as confessing your sin, turning from your sin, and accepting him as the only way to provide salvation, for there's no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. Good place for an amen? Amen. One more scripture, I'll let you go. Let's go back to Micah 6.8. In light of all that we're learning about the times and the season, we're told to be patient, we're told to watch for the Lord's return. But Micah, when he hear, hears all these judgments, he, he says to the Lord, Lord, how do you want me to respond on a personal level? So Micah 6, verse 6, we'll close with this verse this morning. Micah says, what shall I, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with a calf a year old? And will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or ten thousand rivers of oils? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgressions and the fruit of my body for the sins of my soul? Verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? That's what he requires of you because he's done all the rest. Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, we thank you as we make our way through Micah of this promise of this kingdom that is going to come Jerusalem will be elevated. The nations of the world will flow into it. And what this does for us, Lord, it gives us this hope that this world is not our home and that you really do have plans of your own to set up your kingdom which will endure forever. And what you've asked of us is to be grateful for our salvation, to do justly, to love mercy, and just to walk humbly before you. So we love you this morning, Lord, for your goodness and your grace. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen.